I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. All right, here we go. We got to get right into this. Uh, Halloween times has begun. This is very exciting. Uh, we are, and for those that, that don't know, we've been doing this the last few years. Halloween times is when we uh, explore uh, horror and thriller and science fiction and the various uh, the various genres that uh, Christians tend to dismiss as demonic and irredeemable and stuff like that. And uh, we try to see what uh, what we can find in there that uh, that can be of thematic and artistic value. So, uh, and this, and we'll be doing that all uh, all October long. But I want to remind you guys that uh, our co-host Reed Lackey uh, has our fir- has uh, started our first ever spinoff podcast, The Fear of God, in which they talk about horror all the time, uh, from movies, primarily movies, but all the way down to Edgar Allan Poe. So. Uh, so there are several weeks into that, and because I'm recording this episode in advance, I actually don't know what their most recent episode is, but they've got a lot of good stuff. They talk about The Conjuring, 10 Cloverfield Lane, and various other things, so uh, check them out. You can see them at morethanonelesson.com, uh, and then they're also available on iTunes. So, all right, now that that's done and out of the way, this is an exciting day for me, uh, and it should be for you. If it isn't, it will be in just a moment. Uh, we do have a guest, uh, no co-host today, but we do have a guest. He is uh, just what I like to call an iconoclast. It's just he's a man about town. Uh, he's a novelist. He's a commentator. He's uh, what else? What other titles I've would you give yourself? Screenwriter. Screenwriter. Of course. Yeah, screenwriter. Journalist. Journalist. Oh, everything. Uh, uh, what would you call uh, a reader of your own audio books? I, I narrate my own audio books. Yes. An old radio, an old radio man. So. so <laughs> So, uh, yeah, but we have a, a guest. His name is Andrew Clavin. Andrew, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Not bad. Yeah. All right. Now, first things first. Some of you might have uh, heard me on Andrew's podcast, The Andrew Clavin Show, which is a political show by nature. Right. We're going to mostly avoid politics on this episode for a number of reasons, not the least of which I'm just depressed now. It <laughs> just blows me out. I don't blame you. But luckily, I do a lot of satire. So for me, it's like I'm on welfare. They're just <laughs> handing me some satire. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, it's uh, boy, months ago, and, and listeners can attest this, we don't usually talk politics on this show, but sometimes I just couldn't help it and just talk about just the the train wreck of, of Donald Trump and that kind of thing. And we can't get into that right now, but you know, and we're recording this about a month in advance. I have to assume everything's going fine by the time this airs, right? Oh yeah. It's going to be great. <laughs> what, what could possibly go wrong? You know? Everything really <laughs> yeah. turned around. Uh, so, uh, okay. So we've got some, some, we have an actual topic, which is werewolf movies. And we'll explain why, uh, we brought Andrew in for that in a moment, but first some, some general introduction. I already said a lot of the things that you do. Um, and here's where things get a little dicey, because I want to ask you some, some, some interview questions, some background questions, but I don't want to bury the lead here. You have a book out. Coming out. It is called The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew uh, Comes to Faith in Christ. It is autobiographical. Yep. Now, is it... Is it basically your life story, uh, or is it built primarily around your spiritual philosophies and that it, kind of thing? You know, it is my life story. I went out of my way not to burn anybody or burn even burn myself, because all I was trying to show was how I got from one place to another in terms mm-hmm. of uh, my spiritual life. So, you know, there's a lot of anecdotes and a lot of actual life stories 
story in it and a lot of autobiography in it. But the the point of it is always to find out, you know, a lot of people are born, you're born a Baptist, you die a Baptist, you're born a Catholic, you yeah. die a Catholic. My life was more like one of those outward bound programs where I was dropped in the middle of like the furthest thing that, and I traveled to this other place. So I started out, you know, a secular Jew. I was raised in the Jewish tradition, but kind of mm-hmm. without God, you know, right. without including God and worked my way to becoming a, quite a devout Christian. And that's a long journey to take. It took me 35 years. Yeah, yeah it happened f- uh, later in life than you know yep. most people that I know, including myself. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and just uh, what you've said on your own show is something that I find very interesting because it is, as you said, <laughs> you, you almost have a, had a little uh, smirk when you said, like, dev, like quite a devout Christian, like you surprised yourself. <laughs> it, it was a complete shock. Nobody yeah. was more surprised than me. You know? yeah. And uh, and it's a, it, as I say, it's a long way to go. And it's especially, you know, there was never a road to Damascus moment. There's not like mm-hmm. a flash of light or Jesus coming down out of the sky. So yeah. it really is a story of the things in life that change your mind, that make yeah. you point you to the truth. Yeah, it's uh, some people can point to a specific date and uh, good, you know, good for them. I, I've always viewed mine, even though I was raised in the church, uh, you know, there comes a moment when you realize, okay, this is for a while, this is just a culture I'm a part of, but now I'm going to actually embrace it. Mm-hmm. And I describe it as more of just in film terms, just like, oh, it's a fade in. It just sort of <laughs> faded into my life in my teenage years. But uh, and then since then has only become more real to the point that I look at where I was 10 years ago and feel like, oh, wow, that didn't, I mean, I actually believed then, right? Right, uh, right. yes, just, I have that too. That, yeah. But you know, it, it is funny, people who grow up Christian, even if they grow up non-believing Christian, mm-hmm. don't know what it's like to grow up, I grew up in a largely Jewish community where the idea of the divinity of Jesus doesn't exist. Yeah. So it's not like it's not like you deny it. You don't think about it. You don't care yeah. about it. You know, it's just some kind of weird little thing that your Christian friends and I didn't have that many, but I had a few yeah. Christian friends. They all went off and did on Sunday. But it was you're so far away from it, so detached from it, yeah. that when you find yourself there, you yeah. look back over the you know you look back over the road just to make sure you haven't made any wrong turns. Yeah. You know, because it's so startling. And that really that really is what happened to me when I realized I had to be baptized. I spent five months going over my life saying, have I made a mistake? Yeah. And that's what the book is. It's basically those five months of uh, reviewing <laughs> reviewing the situation. I've been talking with a, a listener, and I won't say uh, I won't say his name, but um, but you know who you are. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he's been kind of moving towards faith, and and a lot of what he's been describing is, in fact, a, a full-on belief in God, uh, but he's reluctant to use the term, because once you use the term, like, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, it, you know, like, I guess, and you come to realize just how important, rightfully or wrongfully, how important labels can be. Um, you know, if I say I'm a Christian, which I do... That means a lot to a lot of people, and uh, it could be – if I'm living in one part of the country, it means something very specific. If I'm living here in Los Angeles, it means something else very specific, yeah. and you come to realize like there's a reluctance to use that label because the label has so much – for lack of a better term, baggage to it, positive or negative. You know, it, it's funny. I, I always tell people that we are all, all of us, no matter how smart we are, no matter how wise, we're all being swept along on a current, on an intellectual current, the, the default presumptions of our time. Mm-hmm. And when you embrace Christ, you basically say, I'm stepping out of that current. That ain't an easy thing to do. It's very tough. Yeah. And uh, and we'll actually get to some of that uh, a little bit later. But, uh, but yeah, and so, you know, uh, as far as your 
spiritual life. I think I'm going to save that for the book. Okay. So, no. uh, listeners, the great good thing it's out uh, by the time this goes up. It's out. It's available. You can find it actually at the More Than One Lesson Amazon store. So you don't even have to navigate away from the website. In fact, I prefer you not. Uh, just keep clicking on things at the website. That would be great, actually. Um, but yeah, so you can get it there. Uh, very exciting. Uh, but I did want to actually ask you more about uh, your your professional life, your artistic mm-hmm. life. So, at what age did you? So, did you start? You started as a novelist. Yes, I've been a novelist most of my life. Okay, yeah. and when did that start? When did you? Really early. I mean, okay. by the time I stopped wanting to be like a cowboy and an astronaut, sure. I basically wanted to be a novelist. And my heroes were novelists. Uh, my my male role models all came out of novels. Okay. You know, they, a, a little bit from the movies, old movies on TV, but the Raymond Chandler, detective sure. stories, Ernest Hemingway, all those things were the, those were the things that gave me a, a, something to aim at in a life where yeah. actual real life mentors were in short supply. Yeah. And so I, I loved the sound of prose. I loved the act of reading and I loved the stories of adventure and excitement and, and you know, what it meant to be a man in a world, in the world, especially the world that, you know, I grew up in the sixties and Mm -hmm. the world was falling apart. As a little kid, I pretended to be a soldier and now people were burning their draft cards, you know? So it went, it, it was that dramatic. And in books like Hemingway's books and Chandler's books and all those tough guy novels, you saw a world that had fallen apart because of World War Two, World War One, and the same kind of things applied. How do you, how do we build a philosophy? Yeah. Uh, you know, what does a man do when he no longer is a Victorian? When he's no longer, you know, got a society that supports him? How does a man alone preserve the good of his culture inside himself? And yeah. what does that take? And what does you know? And I just wanted to tell those stories. And I loved, on top of everything else, I loved Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, I, if I had to say, if I had to pick, we're going to talk about monsters today. So if mm-hmm. I had to pick the two things that really uh, cultivated, colonized my imagination, it would be the suspense stories of Alfred Hitchcock, but also monster movies. Yeah. Uh, I loved all the universal monster movies. That's very, that's very exciting. Um, yeah, I'm actually, listeners know that I'm <clears throat> currently... Uh, one of the reasons that I'm recording this so far in advance is because I'll be going back to school, oh. uh, UCLA, oh, enough, to, get my, yeah. to get my master's nice. in film. And so I took one class over the summer and it was an Alfred Hitchcock class. And, and it was, you know, I took it because I'm like, I'm all right, I already know most of these movies. But just delving into them, honestly, at that level of, uh, of uh, intellectual discussion was really invigorating and uh, appropriately... You know, I already knew how great Vertigo was. I already knew how great Psycho was in Rear Window. But as tends to happen with these classes, because I haven't been in school in 12 years, um, there's one movie that I was mostly familiar with, I had seen, and then it just emerges and it becomes like this thing that blew my mind. And for me, Rope was it. Nah. Not just because nah. of the way it was made. Everybody uh-huh. focuses on that. But just the idea of, I I wrote my my paper about it, that... that uh, the audience complicity and like the the key of using Jimmy Stewart in these roles because he's he's us. Yep. And so to see him in these very disturbing characters is uh, is very uh, engaging and very uh, off putting in some cases. But well, uh, I had I had an interesting experience with Hitchcock because um, I grew up when Rear Window was first on television. It was the hmm. first time it was ever aired. And I remember Vertigo being on television, but they say it was never on television. But I did see it as a kid because my father would sometimes bring movies home Mm -hmm. and show them in in the basement, you know. So I did see Vertigo and Rear Window as a kid. And then they were both banned. 
they uh, because of uh, problems with the Hitchcock estate, you couldn't oh. get them. They were uh, they were out of uh, touch. They weren't shown for at least ten, maybe more years. So they sunk into my subconscious. I mean, they blew me away when I saw them, and then they sunk into my subconscious. And by the time they came out again, I was already a suspense novelist. And yeah. when I went and saw them. In the theaters, I thought, wow, Hitchcock stole a lot from me. And I, <laughs> I, had, I had imitated his timing precisely and certain yeah. kinds of uh, quirks. I'd just done them novelistically instead. Yeah. it's Listeners, I'm sure I'm not going to uh, throw you uh, when I say this, that, uh, hey, Alfred Hitchcock is pretty good. Check him out. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I might also be glossing over it a little bit. Notorious, by the way, is also That's one that spectacular uh, I film. can't yeah. get over. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so I will say real quick, um, and we'll get to screenwriting and, and your involvement in film in a moment, but I will say that, uh, you know, uh, and this might get a little bit political, but in a in kind of a roundabout way. So if I might pay you a compliment, uh, when I listen to your show, I listen primarily for political discussion. Uh, but then when you get into, you know, stuff I like, uh, which is a section there at the end, you know, and you'll be talking about a, a book or or. Uh, a musical artist or a movie. And I feel like uh, the way that you talk about art is something that I think is very eloquent and very insightful. And honestly, and this is a thing you and I have said uh, privately, but then also when we were on, when I was on your show, that it's not a thing you run across very much in the conservative community. Yeah. Uh, and you don't run across it very much in the Christian community. Uh, and I know that there, I was listening, this was a while ago, I was listening to you on somebody else's show. It might have been Ben Shapiro's, uh, in which you actually talked about having to defend the choice to write fiction uh, against, you know, uh, other conservatives who just sort of thought uh, that the idea of writing fiction as opposed to nonfiction. What's what's the point even? Right. Um, is that a thing that you s still have to do, or yes, it's you know, a tremendous problem on the right. I mean the. The idea of art on the right is as propaganda, essentially. It's a mm -hmm. spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go round. The, the people are too stupid to understand our brilliant conservative ideology. Therefore, if you sell it to them in a nice little story, yeah. they'll be able to digest it. That view, point of view is completely wrong and anti-art yeah. and anti-every every <laughs> principle of art. And, and to some degree, by the way, that's also the point of view of many Christians, that you know, if, if it doesn't leap out and say, Jesus, 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 or, or somehow be, it's not selling you Jesus, yeah. then it's it, there's something decayed and wrong with the art. That, that's not what art does. What art does is it is yeah. a record of the inner life of human beings, just in the same way that math is a record of the deductions of human mm -hmm. beings, the intellectual deductions. That inner life uh, is dirty and uh, full of uh, you know lust and sin and craziness and violence and excitement at, at those things. It's not just that they're there, it's that we right. love them, you know, that they're yeah. exciting. Uh, one of the reasons I love the movie Goodfellas so much is about how much fun it is to be a gangster, you know, yeah. that's, that, those are the, those stories. The more you know yourself, the more wise you become, the more yeah. reality you can see. If Jesus or if God is real, then the more reality you see, the closer you're gonna come to him. If not, then it's gonna take you away from him. And sometimes I think that what people are really afraid of is that art will expose them. I think they're afraid that maybe they, they maybe they don't have enough faith in what they themselves believe. I have a lot of faith in what I believe, yeah. and a lot of faith in what you know. I in what I have come to deduce about politics and about life. And so when something takes me away from it, 
I'm interested. I want to see where it's going to go. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid no. of seeing a nude scene. I, I know I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I'm, I, yeah. I'm crazy about my wife. <laughs> like, so, so I'm not afraid of seeing that, you know, and, and I don't think it's going to ra- raise anything up in me. It may raise things that disturb me, mm-hmm. but that's a good thing. That's how you learn more about yourself, you know? Uh, and so it's, it's a question of fear, I think. I really do think it's a question of fear. And I don't know why the left is more at ease, partly because most of the artistic community is left wing. So they, they know they're not going to hear anything too disturbing in their Hollywood yeah. movie. They know they're going to attack Republicans, not Democrats, so, so on and so forth. But, but I also think that I think basically leftists know very little about politics. They don't really understand politics. What they really understand is culture. And, and so they're much more comfortable with art and no. much, uh, have a much harder time discussing facts. And that's why they shout down speakers uh, off their campuses. They can't talk about facts, but they can talk about the culture. Yeah. And they win the culture war. And the, even if they lose the factual war, it doesn't matter because of that intellectual current I was talking about. No. They create that current. Yeah. yeah and it's, you know, uh, so one of the reasons that we do Halloween times, as my uh, co-host uh, coined, um, is because... There are entire, there are certainly movies, but then there are, the horror genre is one that Christians tend to be very suspicious of. And I understand it to a point, but getting back to that idea of, of people, uh, of a fear, um, you know, if, if you're, if a person is sensitive to, to nudity as I tend to be, um, it doesn't necessarily preclude me from seeing certain things, but, um, or if somebody is is spiritual towards uh, is sensitive towards like spiritual warfare, okay, that's that's fine as well. But to dismiss the whole genre is something that really bothers me. Uh, one movie that we're going to be talking about this month is The Witch, oh, yes. which I actually I only it. watched a couple a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. Thought it was amazing. Huh? Um, okay, I, I thought it was okay. <laughs> it's well, I first yeah. off I thought the acting was phenomenal. The acting was great, and, and uh, yeah, and I. I <laughs> I, I appreciate their commitment to that language. Yeah, you didn't expect a lot of these that, and those. That was pretty amazing, and I liked the I liked the little details that clearly came from true stories mm-hmm. that gave it this verisimilitude. That, yeah. yeah, it's it's definitely first off, it's just unlike any other like horror movie. Mm-hmm. It's unlike any other period movie. Like it's this weird combination of things where, you know. Yes, it's Salem witch trials, but it's Salem. But there's definitely a lot of crucible in there. Uh, there's a lot going on in that movie that yeah. that I'm excited to talk about when we talk about it. But that's one that you know, uh, in Christian forums, you know, I there are a lot of Christians who just they look at the the ending of that film, and I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, it ends uh, unsettlingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see it as like, well, that movie's just demonic. It's just you know, so we so Christians shouldn't see it. Mm. And it's just like, look, I get it. I totally understand that. And if that disturbed, you know, I'm going to betray some of my uh, Southern living. Uh, if that disturbs your spirit a little bit, uh, then that's understandable. I'm not, you know, uh, by all means, you know, pray for, you know, uh, comfort and peace for yourself. But to say that no Christian should watch it, um, I feel that like that comes from a certain fear. And especially a movie like that, I think the fear comes from this idea of like, you know, there's there is an element of like not wanting to as they say like give the enemy a foothold but it's also this feeling like oh i don't want to indulge in this notion that uh that like evil might be more powerful over good mm. and it's like yeah but we know it's we not. know it wins all you know? yeah. yeah so if you know that and nine times out of ten when you're watching uh, a horror movie that deals in the spiritual 
and the and the the evil starts to win a little bit. Usually, it's because the good, and of course, nobody has like a perfect faith all the time. But it's because the good doesn't really seem to think that they're gonna that that God's gonna help them. There's there's a a, a tendency towards despair that I think you'll find in in the characters that start to whose faith start to give way. You know. Let me let me tell two stories as quickly okay. as I can about okay. a, an interchange with art, which have shaped – the first one has genuinely shaped my attitude toward art. And it's in The Great Good Thing, this story, but it's still worth telling quickly. During my spiritual journey, I went into a period of atheism. For most of my life, I was just an agnostic, yeah. a, a practicing atheist, but I just didn't care. Yeah. But as an atheist, I thought, well, I should read atheist works. And so I started to read books mm -hmm. by people who were ag acknowledged atheists. And some, some, one of those authors was the Marquis de Sade, from who we get the name sadism. And mm -hmm. basically what Sade would write are, was uh, sadistic pornography laced with philosophy. That's basically what it was. It's, and, it, and it's grotesque. When I say sadistic, I don't mean like a slap on the backside. I mean murdering people and sexually yeah. – just it's horrific. He was the only atheist whose philosophy made sense to me. He mm -hmm. was the only atheist whose philosophy was logical from beginning to end. And I thought to myself, if this is atheism, count me out. This is because yeah. it's disgusting, you know, yeah. and it might be, it might be arousing sometimes, you know, I mean, I sure. think we, we all have these weird parts of our b brains, but I thought like that turned me, that was the wall I hit. Marquis de Sade was the wall I hit in atheism. I thought if that's, that is going, that's hell. That's hell on earth. I don't have to even believe in hell. And so it turned me around. And so I just think like the truth, if, if a, a, an artist is honest, which I think Sade was honest, I, I think the truth is there. I, it yeah. may not be the truth he meant to tell. It certainly yeah. wasn't. But you, you can get that truth out of it. On the other hand, half a year ago, I was reading a, a ghost novel, which I enjoyed. And somewhere... Toward the last third, it turned and it got ugly mm -hmm. and satanic and uh, terrible in a way that the rest of the book hadn't been. Not only did I throw the book away when I finished it, seriously, I went back into my office to go to work, left the office, came out, took it out of the garbage in the house and took it out to the garbage outside <laughs> because I didn't want the thing in the yeah. house. So I, I admit that there there are people who are sometimes selling something that is really dark, really yeah. evil, but I have the faith in myself and in God, right. mostly in God, really, to, to say, you know, look, this is what you're seeing. Yeah. This is the truth in that or that it, it's all a lie. I'm not, I'm just not afraid of it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's so much of what you're saying and what I've said on the show before is uh, knowing yourself. Yes. And knowing. And that's what art is about, right? Yeah. It's knowing yourself better. And sometimes you find out that, okay, I, I can't watch this again. Right. And I don't begrudge you that, provided, of course, you don't start to extend that to me. There's actual, there are convictions, which, you know, yours are different than mine. Uh, we had that discussion about Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to begrudge you watching Game of Thrones right. because there are certain issues with me. And I trust, and I trust you to know that you shouldn't be watching it completely. Right. You yeah. know, I mean, that's, that's, I don't yeah. think you're, I don't think you're depriving yourself of anything. You know, I think you're, you're doing what you know to be the right thing. <laughs> and, you know, but then obviously, but then there are, there's actual sin and you don't want to mix one up for the other. Uh, and I think when we, when we're engaging with art, I think a lot of Christians will, will mix, will confuse one with the other and just think that, well, I feel this conviction and I can't imagine anybody not feeling this mm. conviction. So it's obviously an objective sin. Um, but anyway, okay, we got to move on. Yep. Uh, so 
You wrote a book recently, the title of which I love. Uh, it is called Werewolf Cop, yes. which is strange because it's about a vampire paramedic. Um, I just, just like to know, throw a little curve just, in there from that. You know, and you got your, you know, your, your mummy fireman. Um, so Werewolf Cop. You know, uh, which wound up coinciding with a, I believe, like a straight to streaming thing called thing. I think simply called Wolf Cop. Yeah. Uh, that is meant to be very uh, campy and tongue in cheek and that kind of thing. Um, so you wrote Werewolf Cop, and I'm excited because I, listeners of Battleship Pretension, episode 30, and by the time this goes up, we're almost to 500. So our very first like Halloween episode was werewolves versus vampires where my co-host talked about how much he loves vampire movies and I talked about how much I love werewolf movies. I love werewolves. I think they're amazing. Um, and so what prompted you, like you don't have to go into a lot of detail, this, movie, this, this book is also available on our Amazon store. Um, what prompted you to want to tell a story about a werewolf. Well, first of all, let me say I regret that title so much. Oh, I really, I'm sure. You know, I, I did it because I understood I was working in a kind of comic book milieu. And yeah. as you've read the book, it's not, a, it's actually quite, quite a serious suspense novel. And I thought people would get the irony and that was dopey of me. I should have given it a, you know, <laughs> uh, my, my agent warned me he was right. Um, you know, I've, I've spent my life as a crime writer and uh, I did very well. You know, I wrote books that were made into movies and bestsellers and all this stuff and it was great. There came a point, probably because of my conversion or at least the shift in my perspective, my spiritual perspective, when I felt that the describing the ordinary world could no longer contain my vision. I felt mm -hmm. that my vision could no longer be contained in descriptions of a purely natural world because I had stopped believing in a purely natural world or that is hmm. to say I'd stopped believing that the natural world is all there is and you don't want to have angels come and save people because that doesn't you know if it happens in real life we don't see it happening yeah. you know um, and so I started to go back to things that had interested me in my childhood monsters and ghosts and things like that and to see if I could use the skills that I've been working on as a thriller writer or crime writer and yet bring this into it a little bit and so I started writing you know some short stories some screenplays that were still crime stories and yet had this other element and like you I have always I've always loved the idea of werewolf movies but I haven't liked very many werewolf movies hmm. and when I would go in sometimes and talk to uh, you know, I work in Hollywood a lot and I would go in and pitch stories or hear stories pitched. And I would always say the problem for me with werewolf stories is that they think that the horror is you are walking down the street and suddenly a werewolf jumps out at you and rips your head off. Mm. That's not the horror of a werewolf story. The yeah. horror of a werewolf story is you wake up with blood on your hands yeah. and you dreamed you killed somebody and you did. Yeah. That's where the horror, the horror is with the werewolf, not with the victim. Obviously yeah. it's horrific, but that's a momentary horror, you know, the, of being killed, which is yeah. terrible, but that's terrible if it's a slasher, if it's a vampire, whatever. The, the essential horror with a werewolf is the horror of the werewolf, the guy. So I thought, well, why, what would happen if I took a really good person, not just a person who's innocent and hasn't right. harmed anybody, but the kind of guy you turn to for help because he is that guy. And so I created this guy who is this terrific cop, husband and father, good man, 
and thought, well, what happens if he becomes a werewolf and, and starts to kill innocent people? And I didn't want to, I didn't want to like uh, fudge it. You know, I wanted to do the real werewolf thing, which is that you wake up and you kill somebody and you didn't kill him because he was mean. You no. didn't kill him because he was a bad guy. You kill him because he was standing in front yeah, of you right and there. you were an animal, you know? Yeah. And so that's, that was kind of where the idea came from. Yeah. And, and I think you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head as far as what I like about it. If you, you mentioned the, the old, uh, universal, yeah. uh, monster movies, um, now, The Wolfman is not my favorite of those. I think probably Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein. They're mm, both great. Mm, yeah. I think I even prefer The Invisible Man because I love Claude Rains so much. Um, and then Dracula is a, is actually surprisingly uh, laborious. Um, with But obviously Bela Lugosi is great. And then Dwight Fry as Renfield is particularly amazing. Um and the mummy and the creature from the Black Lagoon, like, don't even register to me. No offense uh, to them. <laughs> but um, but the thing that gets me about the Wolfman is what you're talking about. In Dracula, it's here's the regular people. They're scared of Dracula. In the Invisible Man, it's here's the regular people. They're scared of the Invisible Man. Now, Frankenstein, the monster, is sympathetic. There mm -hmm. is that. But there are still the regular people. And what I like about The Wolfman, even though I don't love the movie that much, is that you just get Lawrence Talbot, a nice guy, an innocent guy, not like a hero or anything like that, but there's a sympathetic quality to him. And and he becomes the thing that he doesn't want to be. Like, the terror is him. And it's just so... And when the, the various Wolfman sequels that Universal released, the common... The, Lawrence Talbot's goal is to die. Right. That's all he wants. Yeah. And it's just like, well, I want him to achieve his goal, but I also don't. It's, you know, it, it, it forces the viewer to be at war with what they want, right. just as the Wolfman is at war with what he wants. I mean, in, in the Wolfman, the original, that the key line in that movie is that shocked voice that he has where he says, I kill people. Yeah. Now, what other monster says that? What yeah. other monster says, I, you know, like with such horror, I yeah. kill people. And, and it is horrifying. I mean, we, I, I, I presume most of us have had that dream. I've had the dream where I've killed somebody. Sure. And you wake up in that for, for a first moment, you think, wow, I've done something I can never get out of. And then you realize it's a dream and you think like, oh my Lord. Yeah, what a reprieve. You know? yeah. yeah, what a reprieve. He doesn't wake up. And that is what fascinated me about the story. And, you know, uh, so I, in preparation for this, I actually went back and, and rewatched some stuff and some things I watched for the first time. I watched uh, what is considered like the first big werewolf movie. It was called Werewolf of London, came out in 1935. It is also one of the only songs I'm comfortable seeing karaoke, uh, <laughs> Warren Zevon's Werewolf of London. Um, but, uh, and that's an interesting one, except that it's, that one is a lot more rooted in just basic Jekyll and Hyde stuff. Right. Um, the Wolfman is where, like almost any rule that we think of silver, uh, you know, silver bullets or a cane with a silver handle or a knife or whatever, full moon that came from this. It's yeah. not lore. Kurt Siodmek wrote it. Yeah. That's it. This guy just came up with this stuff. <laughs> and it's just astonishing to me that we all probably assume that that's, that this stuff is like hundreds of years old, but no, it was a 1941. Right. Um, but out of that comes this idea that I really wanted to to dig into thematically, which is, and it's said a million times, there's this little uh, rhyme written by Siad Mac, uh, even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the, when the wolf's bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. 
And it talks about this idea of you're pure in heart. You say your prayers doesn't matter. You're right. still going to become this thing. And it's, it's, it's a curse. It's obviously a curse. And so I'm going to jump ahead 40 years. I'm sure there are, there are other Wolfman movies, but I wanted to jump to American Werewolf in London, which is amazing. And from an artistic standpoint, I will say that uh, the feels crass to use the term money shot, but it's the only one I can think of, uh, of werewolf movies is, of course, the transformation scene. Right. And American Werewolf in London is the one that really made people think, oh, look what we can do with modern effects. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that one is is great partially because it's John Landis who did, you know, one of my favorite movies, The Blues Brothers. Um, and he brought some comedy to it, but there's still the tragedy of this normal guy who doesn't want bad things for people is tearing pe- tearing innocent people to shreds. For me, I think what what really separates the werewolf genre starts in 1981 with The Howling, hmm. where that's when you run across people who are werewolves and they kind of like it. Have you seen The Howling? Mm-hmm, sure. Yeah. It's, been a, it's been a while since I've seen it, admittedly, but I remember a lot no, of it. No, it's still pretty scary, yeah. Yeah, and that one has a very specific tra- transformation sequence because the guy transforming wants to transform. He wants to be this thing. Right. And then I found myself wondering, because you mentioned the 60s earlier, and you know The Howling came out in 81, so it was after the 60s, after the 70s. You know, We've seen... All kinds of terrible things, including uh, uh, the Manson family. And in The Howling, this reporter played by, who is it, D. Wallace? Is that her name? Uh, D. Wallace, yes. Um, she's a reporter and she runs across basically a community of werewolves that feels very cult-like. And, and their whole thing is based on this idea of don't deny yourself anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote down a, a line that a, I believe a, th- uh, a werewolf therapist, you can, that's, that'll be your next title, werewolf therapist. <laughs> um, uh, he says, repression is the father of neurosis, of self-hatred. Now stress results when we fight against our impulses. We've all, uh, We've all heard people talk about animal magnetism, the natural man, the noble savage, as if we've lost something valuable in our long evolution into civilized human beings. We should never try to deny the beast, the animal within us. And then another character says, you can't tame what's meant to be wild. It just ain't natural. <laughs> and that to me is, is it's what, it's what I love about the werewolf genre is if you look at and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to seem like a prude, like somebody out of the the Eisenhower administration or something. But like, if you look at the change in culture, the change in mood, the idea of of Lawrence Talbot of, oh my gosh, I've become something terrible. I need to literally, I need to reverse this curse or die. As opposed to, it's just your nature. Why deny it? It's actually, an, it's unnatural to deny your nature. And so, and as a Christian who believes that we need to die to ourselves and not be a slave to this thing, uh, this is where, and then a lot of movies that, that come into play after this, uh, focus on this as well. You don't run across a lot of movies post 1981, a lot of werewolf movies in which it's still, it's just that full on, a sympathetic guy becomes this thing and nobody wants it. 
Well, I, I mean, what you're you're seeing in the howling is that uh, upsurge of of crime that occurred because of 30 years of liberal uh, jurisprudence <laughs> up, up till then. And as someone who was living in New York during the summer of Sam, mm -hmm. I cannot tell you the, the different, I mean, people just don't know what it was like. It was like l living in a war zone. You couldn't go out and get a pack of gum without thinking, oh, it's too late for me to go out and get a pack of gum. And that's where the howling comes from. And it also comes, and it, it basically relates this back to a misinterpretation of Freudianism. And, and this is the other thing people forget. <clears throat> Freudianism dominated the intellectual life of the West for about 30 years. Yeah, I read uh, a lot of... A lot of stuff in that Hitchcock class. Yes, I mean, boy, just, oh I mean, just incredible. Yeah, well, the last scene in Psycho, where he comes and explains it yeah. all away, and it was this idea that now we get it, we get it. It's, this, but, but interestingly, you know, every model of the mind is based on the most advanced machine of its time, and Freud's mm -hmm. is based on the steam engine. You know, things pressure builds up, yeah. and then the pressure has to come out. And Freud never said he never said that you should let it all out. What he said was it was actually a golden transformation of these base urges into art and life and commerce and all these things. But it later got translated into a sort of more Blakeian idea that what you really have to do is get rid of repression. It's just making yeah. you sick. That's why you're in a psychiatrist's office. And so the, the howling is actually on top of that. It it's actually sees that happening. I mean, the, the yeah. werewolves in the howling are essentially a gang. Yeah. You know, that's what what's they are. But but it is interesting how that perception transforms the entire thing. You're right. After that, you get Wolf with Jack Nicholson, where it's like he's kind of cool, he's fun, he's becoming yeah. a, more of a man, and all this stuff. And and you see this you see this with vampires too. That once you lose the idea that a vampire is damned, yeah, then he just becomes powerful and sexy. You know, yeah. I mean, you we move from. Uh Count Orlock and Nosferatu, who yeah. is literally a walking corpse, a rat-like walking corpse, right. to Edward Cullen in Twilight. You know, you know, one of the things about Dracula is Bram Stoker was, most people believe, a repressed homosexual, uh, you know, who had a, who had a real homosexual life in, internally, and who was horrified by female sexuality. Hmm. And if you read the descriptions of driving the stake into Lucy <laughs> in the novel, you know, that is, a, that is an orgasmic scene and it's terrifying he was terrified by women's sexuality and he th thought that dracula basically is drawing it out of, of people once you lose that terror once and once dracula is not a lost soul a damned soul yeah. then you start to wonder well it's kind of cool i can do that with women you know <laughs> i can get yeah. them to come after me like that and that's where you get twilight and, and what's funny about twilight is twilight is about celibacy and all this but the, it is true that the changing perception of, of the human condition from an essentially christian position which is that we are made in god's image but broken yeah and so a guy sitting there going i kill people makes perfect sense yeah. i mean that is a, that's a christian hero basically or, or a christian anti-hero he's saying i don't want to be this thing yeah. i do what i don't want to do and i don't do what i should do you know that's yeah. what he's saying uh, to go from that to the werewolf as a cool dude because he's letting it all hang out. I mean, that's basically traces society, uh, the societal uh, bent of the last, the societal arc of the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, and and I did want to uh, bring up Wolf with Jack Nicholson. I believe it's a, I say I believe as though I didn't make notes for myself. Yes, yeah. it's a Mike Nichols. It's a Mike Nichols. Um, I, did not, I did not remember that. Yeah. And I, I've seen the film somewhat recently. It's a few years now. And I went in knowing Mike Nichols 
uh, made it and, uh, and I could see it uh, a little bit. Like there's definitely a wit to it. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a much better movie as tends to happen because it was trying to do more than just be a standard, uh, horror movie. Uh, a lot of people dismissed it and said like, I don't, you know, this movie's trash. And it's just like, no, there's, there's stuff going on here. Um, especially when you look at who Jack Nicholson is, uh, in that part, because he is, he's not a bad guy. He is Lawrence Talbot in certain ways. But the big thing is that he's not happy with his life. He's not happy with his job. He's not happy in his love life. He's just kind of, you know, he's sort of like his character would be in about Schmidt years later, just kind of impotent, uh, maybe not literally, but just in his life. And now here comes this thing that says, you don't have to be that, you know, uh, you, uh, there's a line where it says, it feels good to be a wolf, doesn't it? Power without guilt, love without doubt, you know? And it says that, uh, now thankfully I think the film does condemn that attitude because then we see James Spader be a wolf and there's no more frightening a wolf than James Spader because he is scary and slimy at the same time. (laughs) But the, uh, but that's the thing is it sort of says if you live by society's rules, at least that's what Nicholson is being told. I don't think it's what the movie is saying, but Nicholson is being told if you live by society's rules, yeah, you're going to get stuck. You could get stuck in a dead end job because you're, you're afraid to, to uh, stand up to your boss. You know, uh, you're never going to get the woman you want because you're not going to have the confidence. Uh, and... And then being a werewolf, it's like, no, 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 tap into that inner animal and just be this thing and you'll get what you want. You know, I I think this is a subject that Christianity too often fails to address. I mean, we have this kind of wimpy Jesus that Mm -hmm. we sell who's always, you know, I mean, Jesus was a pretty hard-boiled individual. I mean, he was a guy who went up to people who had the power to kill him and told them that they were painted coffins, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he was not, you know, but, but... Too often that becomes like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, yeah. and and especially for men who are n- not generally comfortable with the idea of being meek and mild, and if they are meek and mild, tend not to get the good girl, tend not to get the good job, tend yeah. not to get, the, you know, and so, and so that leaves the other side open to pitch manhood to you as a beastly or demonic trait and mm-hmm. it's only when you start to see manhood as uh an I- the image of god that it becomes horrific to be a wolf mm-hmm. you know that's when it be that's when it's horrific to be a wolf when you when you see manhood true manhood uh the kind of manhood you the kind of sacrificial manhood you see in the, the military yeah. uh, in films like 300 and things like this yeah. when you see that kind of manhood that is uh sacrificial and strong and tough then the idea you know the idea that you can tear somebody apart with your bare fangs is not really that appealing. I mean, then that's kind of yeah. a that's kind of a flaw. But when you're looking at a feminist view of man or a bad badly thought out Christian view of man as as a weakling and as and only decent insofar as he's passive, only decent insofar as he's gentle, only decent insofar as he's mild, then the wolf is a pretty good sell. Is he pretty yeah. easy to sell that wolf? And I think that that was what it was addressing. You know, the moment in Wolf when Jack Nicholson turns and urinates on the guy next to yeah. him like a wolf is the moment when you think like that's kind of that's pretty funny that's kind yeah. of cool you know yeah. and uh and that can only be true if you're in a position of weakness if you're in a position of strength that's a terrible thing to do 
Yeah, so much of how we, and I'm going to go a little bit broader here. I'm going to bring in vampires and zombies and that kind of thing. So much of what we define as a monster is the our instinct to choose ourselves over other people taken to an extreme. Mm-hmm. In the case of vampires, it's I'm literally going to feed on you mm-hmm. to be my to be more myself. With werewolves, it's I'm going to be myself regardless of who you are. Like I don't care about you. You could be prey or not. You you literally mean nothing to me because it's all about me being free and just being true to my my instincts. And you know, and with zombies, it's you know just well, there's all kinds of themes going on with zombies, but you know, the idea of being brought into this, into this horde and you lose your individuality, but you're part of this thing that's bigger than you. And by the way, this thing is also taking over. (laughs) Um, and so you can either try to be in the minority and fight against it. It's not going to be a pleasant experience for you. Um, but, uh, so, you know, there is, there's definitely, and it occurs to me now that actually uh, six years ago I did uh, an episode about uh, the 2010 Wolfman remake uh, by Joe Johnston, which I actually liked more than I than most people, partially because Joe Johnston is such a nostalgia artist that he, you know, he's got like the nice fog. He's no, got that the was castles. the best thing about it. It's perfect. By, by, yeah, that was great. Yeah. It was beautiful to look yeah. at and, and fun. You know, like that's one that you know. We're sitting in my office. I own a fair number of movies. And uh, that's one that my mind will go to and I'll be like, I don't own that. Why don't I own that? And it's like, maybe because I was waiting for Blu-ray. Because I bet <laughs> it looks great on Blu-ray. Um, and of course, the makeup is marvelous because you've got uh, Rick Baker approximating Jack Pierce and who is his hero and all that kind of thing. But what we have in the remake of The Wolfman, and we're skipping over a couple things. We're skipping over Dog Soldiers, uh, which is a wonderful film, by the way. Uh, I absolutely uh, love it. It's a British film by Neil Marshall, who went on to make The Descent, which is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Um, And I think he went on to direct a number of uh, Game of Thrones episodes. Uh, And so, but in The Wolfman, the story is basically the same. The character names are the same. Uh, Even the... (laughs) Even the the uh, visual relationships, which is to say, large hulking Lon Chaney Jr. apparently being the son of diminutive Claude Rains, <laughs> and then we've got Benicio del Toro being the son of Anthony Hopkins, yeah. highly unlikely. Um, everything's the same, but it being modern times, they can't leave this howling attitude out, and it turns out then that Anthony Hopkins' character is embracing that he is himself a werewolf. Mm-hmm. He is embrace and he's embracing it. Lawrence is fighting it and Sir John is is embracing it. And you know, I guess to the to the credit of, of many of these films and I haven't seen uh there's one I think called Ginger Snaps that I I heard was actually pretty good, but um to the credit of most of these movies, they do un- they do seem to understand that where the characters sort of embrace were- werewolfism as hedonism, that that is a bad thing. But an argument could always be made that it's bad at the end, but up until That's then right. there's, there's an element of fun. Right. Nobody, put, you know? nobody puts a poster of the victims on his wall. No right. teenager goes home and puts a poster <laughs> exactly. of the victim on his wall. Exactly. You know, you put a poster of Freddy Krueger of the monster. Yeah. It's always the monster who's cool because he does express just what you said. He does express that ultimate 
we were talking about the Marquis de Sade. That was his argument. The argument was, that's who you really are. Be who you really are. Yeah. That, you know, the Marquis de Sade's argument was, you are really, you know, Freddy Krueger, essentially. There is no God. So why would you not be Freddy Krueger? Yeah. What's, what's the problem, you know? Yeah. And I think that that is what the monster appeals to. It It is, I mean, I always look back when... When the devil has the best tunes, as somebody once said, yeah. I always look back, well, what's wrong with our music? You know, I always think, well, what's the problem with our argument? And I think that I, I very much believe that the death of self and a certain asceticism have been uh, confused with one another. That the idea mm -hmm. that celibacy is sometimes more profound or holy than, you know, than actual full erotic love, yeah. uh, the idea that fasting for huge periods of time is, is somehow uh, more holy than, you know, the son of man who came eating and drinking and, and so on, you know, that, that that idea leaves you open to that sucker punch of the guy who just says, no, you know, just eat and yeah. feast and screw and do all those things. Yeah. You know, I think that the, the death to self includes the self that you, the, the self that you're dying to is is not really yourself. There's another self underneath that that was the self you were made that has desires and has love and has uh, ambitions and things yeah. like that that can be tapped into in a, in a, a sacred level. So I, all I'm saying is that I, I think we've left it ourselves open to this. And yeah. I think that when, when you see monster movies, there's just no question about this. I'll, I'll make an exception for zombies and go back and say okay. why in a second. When you see monster movies, there's no question that the monster has become more and more the hero. The monster yeah. was always cool. When I was a kid, I built monster models. You know, that's what yeah. was on my shelf, monster models. I never built, you know, I never built screaming girls or anything. Yeah. I always built the monsters. And, and I think what we have seen is we have seen an emptying out of the idea of soul, the idea of a person as, as eternal. And that's what has made vampires start to sparkle and twilight yeah. and it's all great. You know, and, and as you say, this idea that self, the self needs to be set free in order to be whole. Yeah. And that is what makes werewolves so attractive and all this stuff. To me, zombies, and I don't really like zombie films because I don't really like gore that much. Oh, like, well, I, yeah, yeah, yeah I like that's I, not for yeah, you then. Yeah, exactly. I, but, but. I will say that I saw Night of the Living Dead in the theater. And oh, wow. It was maybe the, the scariest film experience I ever had. I mean, I went in to see it because I was driving around. There was a double feature, and I walked in. Those are the days of double features. And I walked yeah. in and saw that, and I thought, I can't watch another movie. I'm so scared. You know, I have to. The thing about zombies are zombies are the one monster that expresses a discomfort with materialism. Not not materialism in the sense of I want more money, but materialism in the sense that there's no spirit, everything is flesh. Right. Because the zombies are a perfect picture of what happens if everything is flesh. Then everything is just eating and then you're just, all you are yeah. is a digestive system and the meat that goes into it. That's all yeah. you are. You know, what, what What else is there? You know, all your yeah. songs, all your art, all your, you know, love for your wife and all that stuff. What does it mean if there's not, no soul, you're just a zombie or the zombie's meal? Yeah. And, and to me, that's why it kind of remains, it still has a, a, a weight of horror that yeah. other monsters have lost. Yeah, and it's, it's why... It's why I've always thought that the Terminator is more of a horror movie. It's there's definitely sci-fi there, but when you think about think of how they describe him, it can't be bargained with, it can't be reasoned mm -hmm. with, it doesn't feel pity or remorse, and it absolutely will not stop until you are dead. Well, that's basically a zombie. Yeah, it is also the shark from Jaws, mm -hmm. uh, which Jaws is my third favorite movie of all time. It's I think also it's nature. It's also yeah, nature it's itself. Just nature. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about is. You know, not necessarily nature versus nurture, but it's fascinating to me that when you look at 
these movies, they are saying that, no, if you want to be true to yourself, you so you only go with instinct. Whereas an argument could be made that, well, no, the self is who I'm deciding, not necessarily who I'm deciding I'm going to be, especially these days, uh, politically, there's all kinds of arguments <laughs> about that, but it's the choices that I'm making. That's who I am. Because if you're going by instinct, there's no choice to be made. There's the initial choice of, I'm just going to do whatever my instinct tells me to do. But then, you know, and I'll, I'm foreshadowing a Bible verse I'm going to be reading in a minute. But at that point, then you're just like, you think you're free. But in that instance, you're just being slave to your instinct. But that's the logic. That's the logic of so-called, I call them so-called scientists because it's not really science, it's scientism. Mm-hmm. That you keep hearing guys say, Sam Harris, the famous atheist writer, uh, who says, you know, we don't really have free will, but we have to pretend we do. Right. And you go like, well, wait a minute, wait, whoa, 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 <laughs> you know. And and what they'll always say, Steven Pinker says this too, eventually they say, they also use the same kind of terms, eventually we're going to find we don't have free will. And I always think, you know what, call me when you get there. Call, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm at home, you know where to find me, give me a ring. Yeah. You know, because that's not going to happen. That is never going to happen. Logically, is essentially can't happen. We're never mm. going to find that we have no free will. And so, they are basically pitching this idea of us as machines. Yeah. And, and that, you know, and, and again, people fall for that because it's the scientific current, you know, that current of science, whereas real science, when you start to look at it, real science has become a lot more confusing than that and a lot more open-ended. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and that idea of we have no free will. And I've, I've talked about this in the past when we talked about no country for old men and the Mm -hmm. dark night and just the, the philosophy of somebody like uh, Anton Chigurh or the Joker or something like that. Um, you know, if we are only this thing, if we are only our instinct, if that's the best way to live, then there's no, or if we are just a machine, whatever it is, then it's just like, well, then there's really no use in the justice system because if we have no free will, if we can't make a choice, then what's the point? Then you chose this thing that I don't like, but what right do I have to, this Correct is, you. This is why the Marquis de Sade is the only <laughs> is the only atheist who makes sense because he doesn't do what all these guys do is they say, but but it's good for society if we're all nice to one another. Right. And you think, what do I care? What you know, why do I yeah. care what's good for society? What do I care what's good for you? All I want to do is not get caught and get everything I want. That yeah. in, if I am it, truly as you describe me, then that is what I want. And that's what the Desaad says. He doesn't hold anything back. And and you realize when you see that world, it's hell. It's hell on earth. It, it is it is everything the Christian thinkers told us it was. And you know, when you see uh, World War Z, which is a zombie mm-hmm. movie I, I particularly liked. I thought yeah. that was a really good zombie movie. It was a lot better than I thought it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, no, I thought it was very compelling. You know, you do, you see exactly that. Men making choices. People yeah. deciding they're not going to be, they're going to be one thing and not another. They're going to yeah. do one thing and not another. And they do it. Why? They do it for love. They do it for family. They do it yeah. for the things that matter. And, you know, I, so I think that zombie movies have become kind of interesting because, as I say, I don't like them by nature. And I truly believe you shouldn't watch things that are just going to bug you and just keep you yeah. up at night. You know, um, but but I do feel that I'm I'm happy to see that a zombie is still horrifying yeah. in ways that a vampire no longer is. Yeah. Uh, and we do need to start uh, winding down. So I will actually just quote uh, from uh, Romans here, Romans 6, 15 through 18. Uh, Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. And so that actually addresses, I've got more to read here, but that actually addresses this other idea that, oh no, because you're forgiven, you can do whatever you want. It's like, no, that's just 
the Christian version of the werewolf thing, you know, that's, and that's not how we're supposed to live. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey, to obey from your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. It's this idea. I believe you actually, it's a thing I've said on the show a million times. It's one of my favorite Bob Dylan lyrics, which is maybe the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Um, And the thing is, you know, and, and I feel like we, we could go so much deeper on this, but there is an element, you know, I, I go back to this, this, this quote from Wolf where it says, it feels good to be a wolf, doesn't it? Power without guilt, love without doubt. And it's talking about being able to have these things. And power, I think, is neutral. I don't think it's inherently good or bad. Right. Um, love, I would say, is good. I'd say that's a net positive. <laughs> uh, you know, the, these are perfectly fine things to desire. Uh, but then we feel like, oh, I want love without guilt. So the only way to do that, the only way to have these things without questioning them is to just get rid of the question and just do what I want to do and stop, you know, get rid of any idea of conviction, get rid of any idea of, of guilt or shame or anything like that. And then I will have these things and it's like, yeah, but then you, what you're ultimately doing is you've stopped caring what other people, the effect you're going to have on other people. Um, well, I, I think it's, I, I would go further than that. I think okay. you've stopped caring about what you are, what the, your, yeah. your real uh, nature is because th- this idea, first of all, it's such an old fashioned idea that these things bubbling up inside you are, will, will, if you just let them go, if you just let the steam out mm-hmm. every, what bliss, what joy it will be. Yeah. I mean, when has that ever worked? When has that ever been true? And so that means if it's not true, that means that it is not this buried self who you think is your real self. That there's something even more than that. That that buried self yeah. is something you may be afraid to face, and that gives it a power over you yeah. that it doesn't have to have. Once you bring it out of the darkness, I mean, this is the the purpose. I think this is the efficacy of forgiveness. The efficacy of forgiveness is you say like, oh yes, the, you know, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. This thing, yeah. this ugly thing inside me, it's real. It's there. I, I don't have to be ashamed of it anymore. I'm bringing it out. Here it is. But it doesn't take you over. I mean, that's what yeah. that verse that you're quoting is basically saying. It, yeah. it doesn't then become you. It simply becomes part of your understanding of yourself. And I mean, I think that that is, you know, so much so much about classical Christianity as it's sold to the public, because I don't believe it is classical Christianity, but so much, is, is this kind of self-punishing, yeah. guilt-ridden, you know, finger-wagging thing from the guy who said, you know, uh, uh, judge not lest you be judged. Suddenly it becomes this finger-wagging, yeah. you know, you're, you shouldn't be thinking that, you shouldn't be doing that. Instead of saying, oh, I, I get it. I'm not who I pretend to be, yeah. but neither am I who I fear I am. I yeah. am something other entirely, something huger than this entirely. And of course, that's what we're talking about. We're, the monster movies, all of them, all of them work by narrowing your sense of what you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I don't have any quotes from Ecclesiastes, so I will, <laughs> I will just reference the entirety of the book. Uh, you know, it's a guy searching for purpose and searching for, and in a search for purpose, I think, is a search for yourself. And 
and one of the things that he tries is just complete hedonism looking for like this will this is where i will finally be pleased where i can finally as you say like kind of purge all this stuff and then it's like oh but it just comes right back and so there must be something bigger something that will finally allow me to have this thing um and one thing that i didn't mention is that uh that has come about in werewolf lore is the idea that the werewolf will always go after the person that he loves the most Mm. because love true love is an enemy to doing your own thing and because it's you will have to restrain yourself sometimes from doing everything you want to do it's i'm married uh but this woman over here looks very attractive Hmm. i guess i can't have sex with her you know uh but that's the thing is the love that we're talking about, you know, from a Christian standpoint is there is a love without guilt. There is, uh, all of these things that we say, oh, I just need to be more myself. Um, you know, if we embrace Jesus and, and God's will for who we are meant to be, then we can live in the freedom that we don't have to just do what our instincts say and that we can serve somebody who had an idea of who we are meant to, an idea, who has, you know, who's set out who we are supposed to be. And we can take comfort in the fact that we are doing what we were meant to do, and it's, and it's a function of our choice as opposed to what we as zombies or werewolves or animals that we're just meant to eat and, uh, you know, I'll reference Jaws, eat and swim and make little sharks, you know, <laughs> that there's so much more to our lives than just that. You know, it's funny. It occurs to me that we've kind of come full circle in this conversation mm-hmm. because we started out talking about what Christians and conservatives fear in the arts. And it is that vision of man as a, a guy who's holding himself together against this de- demonic force, which is different than original sin, which mm-hmm. is that your will is broken, but it, it was originally something beautiful, that yeah. your will and your desires were something beautiful, and that brokenness is what you're trying to uh, get get over. It is not, it is not that you are holding down the, the lid on this steaming pile right. of mean, horrible, evil desires. And I think that the fear of art, the fear of, of the self, is the fear of the self. And I really do believe, I mean, you know, Christianity has given me such joy. And I think the reason for that is because it has, to to a large degree, it has eradicated that sense of myself as somebody with something to hide, but rather more like that, the line that I quoted before from The Tempest, where uh, Prospero looks at the kind of hunched evil Caliban, which Mm -hmm. is a, you know, this cannibal with the letters, uh, uh, screwed around and he says this thing of darkness i acknowledge mine uh and he accepts him as part of himself part of who he is you know i think that that is an attitude that lets you come to art ready to be exposed ready to be challenged ready to be uh brought to a new level of truth about yourself and i think that it it really does that's the monster killer that's the thing that kills the monster it's it's an acknowledgement of who you are but not an acknowledgement but it's an acknowledgement of who you are, but a further acknowledgement that that's not who you have to be. Right. Um, right. And that you don't have to stay in this place. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I think if you look at, at these movies, 
they end, you know, let's go back to the Wolfman. It ends with Lawrence Talbot dying and being happy to die because he is dying to him. He's literally dying to himself because he would rather do that than hurt the people that he loves. And in that instance, he is making a choice that he was not, that he would not be free to make as the Wolfman. Uh, Lawrence is making the choice and, you know, and I will very briefly, cause I know we have to wrap up. I will very briefly say that, you know, uh, listeners know that I'm somebody that has, uh, struggled with uh, porn in the past. And I can't tell you how many times, uh, I would be bored and think like, Hey, you know what? Maybe I'll just do this. And it's like, yeah, but a, you don't even really want to do it. This isn't coming from a place of arousal. You don't even want to do it. And you know, you don't, and you know, you shouldn't do it. And I, and there was an element in my, in my mind that said like, yeah, but you're going to do it. Mm. You just know you've entertained the notion. So we all know what's going to happen here. (laughs) And that I like that to me is a picture. It's a very casual picture, but it's a picture of being a slave to sin. And that, and just this, the the real sadness of, well, look, you're going to do it. So you might as well embrace it Mm. to a certain extent. And Jesus says, you don't have to. No. You, you've given so many arguments as to why you're, you don't want to, and you actually can go with that if you want. You can you not do this, uh, this thing. And I think that that is what creates the perception that Freud, you know, rightly described, that you do, there always is discipline required in being a human mm-hmm. being. There always is. Yeah. You know, there are, there are all things that we've all, we all have things we struggle with, every single one of us. There's not a man jack of us who is like free. You know, that, that's just not the way it is, you know, and you always... You know, whether it's eating, drinking, porn, all these things that, that, that you know, I, I don't think the devil comes and takes you away because you look at something or drink too much or all that. It, yeah. it just slowly empties you out and degrades yeah. you and all this stuff. So you use some discipline against your body. But even that discipline, even that discipline against your body tells you that you are more than your body. Yeah. Who, what, what other animal does that? What, you, know, yeah. you know, you don't see a wolf go like, eh, I'm not going to eat that. You know, so that's the thing. I mean, the, even the fact that you can exercise discipline, even the fact that you fail, even the fact that you fail tells you that you were trying to do something yeah. against your body. Yeah. And so you have that power. Yeah. It's, it's to, to finally wrap up, it's this idea that, you know, if you go to the gym, you acknowledge that you're, you're, you're engaging in discipline, disciplining your body. You're denying, if you're a diet, if you ever diet, you're denying yourself something that you really want. Like, for example, you go see, don't breathe, uh, uh, yesterday and, and, uh, all you want is a popcorn and a Coke, but you're on a diet, so you can't do it. Yeah, I was just describing me. And, uh, you know, and so you recognize that, like, what I want is, in this case, a destructive thing. But thankfully, we can want other things, you know? If that's all there is, then it's like, oh, well, this is very depressing. If all I want is my instinct, if all I want is this thing, and if, the, if that's all there is to want, then it's very depressing. But, you know, God provides us with uh, an alternative that's actually much more freeing than one would think. But uh, we do need to end there. Uh, so this is a great deal of fun. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. I love um, talking movies. <laughs> So, uh, listeners, this is a uh, week one of Halloween times. Tune in. Uh, we'll be talking about, should I tell you what? Yeah. You know what? I will. We're going to be talking about the witch. We're going to be talking about the shallows. And then we're going to be wrapping up the month with 
one of my favorite movies of the last few years, Bone Tomahawk. Uh, <laughs> I just so, saw that. Oh, did you? Yeah, very, Okay, very well, enjoyable. we'll yeah. b- talk briefly <laughs> off mic. So, uh, so, yeah, that's what you can look forward to. In the meantime, you can like us on Facebook. You can follow me on uh, Twitter, at More Lessons. You can email me, Tyler, at MoreThanOneLesson.com. You can uh, comment on this, uh, on this episode, if you like, at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Uh, Andrew... Where can people find you online? All over the place. All over the place. I have my shows on thedailywire.com, so mm-hmm. you can get the Andrew Clavin Show uh, Monday through Thursday on thedailywire.com. And uh, I do have a website, andrewclavin.com, and I would love it if you would check out The Great Good Thing, which uh, I think you will really like. The Great Good Thing is a memoir of my conversion. All right. So very exciting. Once again, Andrew, thank you for being here. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll get you next time.